Lord, we thank You for Your amazing grace. It's not just a, a great old song that we know the words to, but Lord, truly, that it's through that amazing grace that our chains have been removed, that our chains can be removed. Lord, I pray that You would give us a fresh new outlook this morning. Lord, we've come for a variety of reasons, but Lord, we know that with You here, there is but one reason, and that is to turn our focus towards You, to worship You. And to submit ourselves to you so that we might be made new. We pray that you make it so this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was told a couple weeks ago that uh, I think it was that particular Sunday there were nine, I think, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, if you were working in there, maybe it was 50. Nine babies were in the nursery probably felt like 50. There were nine babies, I think, in the nursery on a Sunday morning during the 10 o'clock hour, I think two or three weeks ago. Nine. There's a whole bunch of babies. If you haven't noticed in the last several years, our church has sort of grown quite a bit, with especially with the addition of young ones, with, with little ones. And so, of course, there's, it's really exciting, obviously, if you've, if you've been down that road before and the Lord has blessed you with the opportunity to have children of your own, whenever it is that you're, you're preparing for their arrival, you, you are getting everything ready. You're, you're trying to get the room ready and so on and so forth. And, and, and so you, you, you spend all this time and everything, every, you decorate and so on. One of the themes throughout, I, I probably throughout the history of decorating baby rooms, other people have chosen uh, has been Noah's Ark. And so they, they have somebody come in and they'll paint little murals on the wall and you've got the little animals that are just, they're happy, you know, and Noah, he's just excited. And, 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 you know, there's this ark that, I mean, it looks like, you know, a, a cruise ship. I mean, it is incredible, you know, and, and then you got the little plush animals and, and the crib and everything's all decorated and whatever. I find that to be a very curious thing. Very curious if you think about it. Because we start lying to our kids even before we bring them home. Even before they're born, even before we bring them home, we say, here's your, your little room. We start lying to them with all this stuff that we say about Noah's Ark on the walls. They're surrounded by animals just happily marching two by two. The animals go you know, marching into, you know, they, they, they're so happy. But here's what I want, okay? Whoever's going to have a baby next, whoever's going to adopt a kid and bring them home, whoever that is, whoever's next on the list, that you're decorating a room for a kid, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell the real story of Noah's Ark on those walls, okay? So here's what I've got for you, all right? I've got your decorating right here. You you don't need to look any further. I am your interior decorator. One wall, totally painted black, nothing else on it, totally dark, because God said the world was so dark with sin at that point that he's just going to wipe them off. So every morning a kid gets up and they just look at this dark wall staring them in the face. Just be reminded, kid, sin. There's your wall of sin right there. Maybe you can just write all their sins up on the wall or something as they commit them. I don't know. But you one wall totally black. That's it. Nothing else ever goes on it. Then I want another wall where Noah is building the ark and you've got you you've got that scene going on but you got people laughing at him standing over like what are you doing you're in a, you're a moron why are you building this stupid boat that's what one one wall that I want we don't have any record of those people actually doing but surely to goodness for a hundred years as he builds this boat that has never been needed before people walk by and they're like who's the moron building the boat like what do you we don't even live near the ocean dude we're in a desert okay why are you building a boat that's what I want one wall of people making fun of Noah then I want another wall Another one where the people and the animals are being swallowed up by the flood. 
Okay, that's what I want. And they're, you know, here they are, and it's just, it's bad. I just, really just terrifying. So you've got the dark wall of sin. You've got Noah being made fun of. You've got the people dying in the flood. That's another wall. And then on the other wall, I want a picture of what was going on inside the ark. Noah's scratching his head like, what are we going to do with all this stuff the animals are producing, if you know what I mean? <laughs> we got a year on this boat. Like, that's the four walls for your kids' room. And then to top it off, you know how they got those little musical mobiles? They go around and they hang over the crib. What I want to play in nonstop is Credence Clearwater Revival. Who'll stop the rain? And you've got these little figurines and they're just, they're all screaming and they're not happy. And that's what's going on. That, if we told the true story in Noah's Ark, that's it right there. That's what we need. And the kids are, every kid needs that in his room, right? That's what we need. It's more like it. So there you go. Whoever's going to have a baby next, I got it all solved for you. If you do that, you're insane, by the way. Totally insane. But I'd love it. I'll come over and, yeah. I'll, I'll, paint, I'll, I'll paint the one wall solid color black. I can do that. I'll paint that for you, okay? But, you know, that's really a more accurate depiction of what was going on in the story of Noah's Ark. I wonder how you learned the story way back when. Maybe you were in Sunday school a long time ago, or you just picked it up through cultural conversation, and you heard the story, and the focus maybe was on the animals, and, and all the animals that were gathered two by two, and they, you know, here they go, and they march into the ark. Or maybe it was on the flood. You know, this is, you know, this is incredible. I mean, the, 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 the water, the, it says the water from the deep, the, 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 uh, it just burst open, and then the floodgates of heaven open. I mean, just incredible flood. Or, or probably you learned a lot about the rainbow at the end of the story, and God's promise never to destroy the earth again like he had done. Uh, we're in a series called Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. And, and I think Noah's Ark is one of those, we probably thought we knew that story. But maybe, maybe, even this familiar story has a little bit more to it than we realized. I don't think that it's necessarily we were taught something that was wrong. Certainly the story involves animals, and flood, and rainbow, and all those kinds of things. But I'm not sure that those are exactly the point, or the overarching theme, or the main thing that we can learn from the story. I think that the truth of Noah's Ark story comes down to one really kind of a thematic description of what the story is about. So you're going to see this on your outline. I'm going to give it to you in two different parts, even though it's, it's kind of just one phrase there. The first part of this, the, the theme really is that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Here's what Noah's Ark is really about. First of all, that judgment is coming. You've got a Bible handy. I want you to turn with me to the book, to the book of Genesis. If you go to the front, just turn to the right a little bit. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And we're going to look in chapter 6 to begin with this morning, okay? Genesis chapter 6 tells us the reason that judgment is coming. Look in chapter 6, verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. So God is, is radically reducing the, the uh, lifespan. Uh, the Nephilim were on the earth during those days, and afterward... When the sons of God came to the daughters of men who bore children to them, they were powerful uh, men of old, the famous men. Verse 5, when the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, that every scheme of his mind, uh, that his mind thought of, was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off the face of the earth, man whom I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Judgment is coming, God says. 
It will happen. Sin was so bad. Now, if, you, if, you, if you've ever studied Genesis chapter 6, these first few verses can be pretty confusing. Who are we talking about? What was going on? As best I can tell, there, there comes down to a couple of different interpretations of this. And, and, and one is that there were some descendants of, of Seth, uh, one of Adam's sons, who had become unruly. Uh, literally, they, their sin was, was, was too much. There's another interpretation that would say that every time you see the words sons of God in the scripture, that points to angels. So somehow maybe these demons had possessed people and began to intermarry and they're creating this super race, if you will, of people. And certainly we know in the spirit world that is possible. Demon possession is certainly a possible thing. And so regardless of what's going on, what we have is a demonized world that thinks of evil only all the time. It was bad. And that's why I say one wall completely dark is not entirely inaccurate. Because when God looked at the world, that's all he could see. Darkness of sin. It was bad. It says, verse 5, Lord saw man's wickedness was widespread on the earth. It covers everywhere. That every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. He's not talking about a few people making it really bad for everybody else. He's talking about everybody. As bad as our world is today, we think, it ain't that bad. I I understand that we, being very myopic kind of people, like every person who's ever lived in history is, we always think our time is the worst. It's never been this bad before. What in the world's happened to our world? Genesis chapter 6, God said, it's so bad I'm killing everybody. How about that one? That's what God said. Is it that bad? Has God killed everybody? No, not that bad. Does it mean it's not, it's good? Nope, doesn't mean it's good. But understand, this was really, really bad. There's no repentance. Nobody turning to the Lord during this time. And I praise God. I want you to know this. I don't know if you being here this morning is, is out of a pure motive and you say, you know what, I just love the Lord and I want to be with God's people. I have no idea, but I'm glad you're here regardless. Because it's a sign to me that you know what, there are still people in this world who love Jesus. Still people in this world who will say, I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. If you ever get discouraged, if you ever wonder, is there anybody out there who really follows the Lord? I I think that's part of the reason for showing up at church on Sunday morning is to say, you know what, I am not alone. There are still people in this world who love the Lord and are still tracking toward him. And I praise God every Sunday morning when we get to gather that that's one reminder that we get to have. Because the world can be a pretty bleak place, can't it? I mean, it can be a very dark place. And all we can see is sin. The world, not as bad as it was, but still very bad. God said judgment is coming. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to flood the entire earth. Anything that can't survive outside of the water will die. That's what he is going to do. Now, today we know, of course, that judgment is still coming. When will the judgment happen? It will happen at the return of Jesus Christ. When he returns, he will judge, the Bible tells us, the living and the dead. It's going to be for the same reason, because God will not tolerate sin forever. One day he will judge it and do away with it. But it will happen in a different way. The Bible tells us that when the rainbow was shown as the sign of the covenant, that God said, I will never destroy the earth in the same way again. So anytime you see a rainbow in the sky, that is a reminder of God's promise. 
But God will judge the world once and for all. There will be two kinds of judgments. If you want to turn, look over the New Testament real quick. Go to the book of Hebrews. If you just want to write down the reference, that's fine. Hebrews is way over toward the end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, puts it this way. There's going to be a personal judgment. It says, It is appointed for people to die once, and after this, to face judgment. The older versions might say, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then to face judgment. The judgment. There is a personal judgment that one day you and I each on our own will stand before the Lord. Let me just tell you this. I referenced a minute ago the people that are coming to church, and I don't know exactly why all the reasons, but, but understand that as much as I love you, as much as I want to help you, as much as your Sunday school teachers and the spiritual leaders in your life and your parents and whomever want to love you and help you grow spiritually, we cannot, I cannot stand on your behalf before God. That is only you. The Bible tells us there is but one high priest, his name is Jesus Christ, and he alone is worthy to stand before God on our behalf. I can't do it for you. No one can do it for you. There will be a personal judgment where I am judged. You all, I can't say, well, God, look at that great church that we had way back in 2018. Do you remember that, God? Yeah, I remember that. Do you you remember how great that church was? Yeah, I remember how great that church. Lord, isn't that enough for me to be judged on? And God's going to say, what are you talking about? I told you there is a personal judgment and those who are not found in Christ Jesus will face the penalty for that judgment. A personal judgment. Every person stands before the Lord. It is appointed once to die and then to face judgment. Then there is also a collective judgment. Look, if you turn a little bit further to the right, if you're in Hebrews, look in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, verse 11, tells us this. John, the apostle, is writing what he saw, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what is written in the book. Then the sea gave up its dead, and the death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire there is collectively a punishment the world itself will be judged for its sin so we know that judgment is still coming and it will be even more terrifying and more final than in noah's day god will only tolerate sin for so long so part of the theme of this story is that judgment is coming and i think the other part is the command of God, judgment is coming, so get in the ark. Get in the ark. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, God tells Noah this exact thing. Judgment is coming, he says, so get in the ark. Look in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Therefore I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And here he describes how big it's supposed to be and so on. Verse 17, understand that I am bringing a deluge, flood waters on the earth to destroy all flesh under heaven. 
with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. And he tells him, here's what you're to bring. God says, judgment is coming, so get in the ark. Noah, get in the ark at the right time. Don't wait. Once you have completed this building, you are to get in the ark. You realize that Noah was doing something and preparing for something that no one had ever done or prepared for? Ever? Funny thing, really, the ark. Unheard of in his day. The ark, however, God said, Noah, is your only hope. You will die in the judgment, in the flood, if you are not in the ark. Now, I believe there is a direct parallel in Scripture between the ark and Jesus Christ. I believe that one previews the other. Not every single thing about the story lines up exactly, but I believe that the ark, Noah's ark, previews the role of Jesus Christ. For Noah and his family, getting in the ark was the way that God said they would escape judgment. There was no other way to escape it. Get in the ark. And for us today, Jesus is our ark, the way that God commanded through which we can escape the judgment of God. And over and over and over in the New Testament, we are told there is no other way. No other way to escape God's judgment. Now, we like to think that there is another way. And, and, and we typically think, especially here in Western Kentucky, we typically think that our way to, to you know, kind of be saved, and isn't the, you know, what we're supposed to do, is just to be good. We're good here in Western Kentucky. We've got good people. Man, we're good. Now listen, we're, it's not just us. The rest of the world kind of thinks this too. If you're just good, by whatever standard might be defining good at that point, if I'm just good, then that's probably the way that I'll be, you know... I'll get to heaven or whatever there might be, you know, at some point, right? I mean, I just, just be good. We like to think there is. No, we, we really wish there was another way because surrendering our lives to Jesus is, is kind of hard. I don't like to give up all that stuff. Can I just be good and that be good enough? And certainly we live as if there's another way quite often. I asked somebody not long ago, what's the point of life? And the answer, of course, the question kind of put them on the spot, you know, it was kind of a random thing, but the answer was something along the lines of, well, just to be good to people. Okay, that certainly should be included, I guess. But the point of life is not just to be good, because being good, God says, isn't good enough. People back then, during Noah's time, were just living however they wanted to. Seems like that's kind of the way things go today. And if we're not careful in our Christian lives, listen to this, in our Christian lives, in our church world, we will still live however we want. However we want is just to be good. So that makes me feel better. So I don't have to truly surrender to Jesus Christ and have my life really changed. I can just be good and sort of get on board with the externals and show up every once in a while and not worry about the, every, the other six days of the week and just sort of be good. If we're not careful, we'll be just like the people who rejected God back in Noah's day. We'll do it, though, by being good. You get my point? You understand what I'm saying? Is there anything inherently wrong with being good? Oh, okay, so I guess I should just go do whatever I want to. 
preacher said, don't be good. That's not my point. The point is, is that being good apart from Jesus Christ is impossible. And not only that, but our efforts, God says, are like filthy rags. We're not good apart from Jesus Christ. We can't ever be good apart from him. And yet we try and try and try and try and try to be good. And God says, stop trying. Just get in the ark of Jesus Christ. Repent. Believe. Get inside of him. Let him overwhelm you and shut you in. Judgment is coming, so get in the ark. I want you to hear that message. Of all the things that you hear from me, it's not about fire and brimstone and threats and all that kind of stuff, but it is about the reality and the truth that the Bible tells us that one day judgment is coming, and if we are not found in the ark of Jesus Christ, we will stand on our own in that flood water of judgment, and we will die for all eternity, the Bible says. My message is just like the one that Paul said in 2 Corinthians. And if you're in Christ, you're made new. So be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. Made new by Jesus Christ. Now someone may say, all right, all right, that's, that's good. I want to escape the judgment. I mean, I want to get in the ark. I, I, mean, I really do. I, I want to be sure that I'm, that I'm in. How can I know for sure? You ever doubt your salvation? If you're a person who says, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, you ever gotten to the point where you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe you've messed your life up so bad since you became a Christian that you don't even know if you're saved anymore. Could God really love me if as a believer I did all these things? Let me tell you this. I struggle with the same stuff. I was eight years old, eight When I gave my life to Jesus, a real moment, a real thing, it wasn't something I did because my parents told me to, because my church forced me to, a real thing. I was baptized a few months later, and I'll tell you this, every major sin I remember committing has been as a Christian. Now put that one on for a second. You know what I'm talking about? You know the things you've done since you said, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm giving my life to him and I'm going to be baptized as a public sign of my inward faith. And and you know all those things you've done since then? Guess what? I understand. So what do we do with that? How can we really know for sure that I am in the ark of Jesus Christ? Is it because I prayed a prayer? Is it because I'm trying to live perfectly now? I mean, what do I do when I mess up? Does that mean I'm out? I think when we look at this story, we'll see really what God wants us to understand. And that is the kind of person who is found in the ark has some specific characteristics about him or her. And I don't think this story is primarily just about God's judgment in a flood. Or just about how he saved the animals by taking them on the ark two by two. Or just about a rainbow at the end of the story. I really think that the story centers on the man Noah and how it was that he lived. And what about him was the kind of person that God said, yeah, you're going to be on the ark. What about him? I think there are three main things this morning. We'll just kind of give them to you and you can think about them and deal with them. Let God work on your heart with them. Three things, the characteristics of the kinds of people that were on the ark literally back then and the kinds of people that we can know, we can say, yes, absolutely. I'm confident that I know Jesus Christ because these things are evident in my life. The only way that we can know, I think, really uh, about each other, certainly the, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and tells us, yes, you are a child of God. And he also helps us to see here's what God is doing in your life. Three things that will happen, I really believe, when you are a person on the ark. The people in the ark, first of all, walk with God. The people in the ark walk with God. Look in verse 8 of chapter 6. 
Noah, however, the however is, is on all the sin in the world. Noah, however, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. The kinds of people that are on the ark are the kinds that walk with God. Noah was declared to be righteous. He was a righteous man. That does not mean he was perfect. The word blameless there in the scripture, when you read that, does not mean he was perfect. It means that nobody could really say anything about his character. He was a legitimate follower of God. You may be fearful that if you go out and commit a sin, what's everybody going to think of me? You know, I go to church every Sunday, or you know what? I, I mean, I claim to be a Christian, and I, you know, then I say this, then I think this, then I do this, then whatever. Let it not be said of you that your goal is perfection necessarily, but my goal is simply to be found in Jesus Christ so that he may make me blameless before God and others so that my reputation will be strong. Noah walked with God. I want you to look at a couple of things here about the righteousness spoken of in the New Testament, about the righteousness in the Old Testament. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. The book of Romans over in the New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the book of Romans. And again, if you just want to write down the reference, it would be good for you to, to go and study this stuff later on, kind of let God speak to you all over again. There's some, some words here that the Apostle Paul writes about Abraham, who was one of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. He talks about Abraham's righteousness. Look in verse 1 of, of Romans chapter 4. What then can we say about Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. What has he found? If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to brag about, but not before God. That's what I told you. Being good isn't good enough, right? Nobody can say we're better than God. For what does the scripture say? Look at it. Look at it in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. How was he declared to be righteous? Well, it was because he believed God. He was justified by faith. Then if you look in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And he would go on, Paul would go on to talk about how we are descendants by faith of Abraham. We are his in his faith family if we place our faith in Jesus Christ and not in our own good works. So when the New Testament speaks of the righteousness of those in the Old Testament, it always talks about their faith. It wasn't that they did all these good things and God said, well, okay, you stacked it up high enough. I guess that's good. You are now declared to be righteous. They could have done all those good things, but what declared them by God righteous was their faith. Then look in Hebrews again. If you flip over, keep going to the right a little bit. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at what the New Testament says here about Noah. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, says, By faith Noah, after being warned about what was not yet seen, that's the flood, that's the judgment, in reverence built an ark to deliver his family. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah walked with God. What does that mean? He trusted God. He walked with God in faith. He was simply righteous, doing what God told him to do. And it changed everything about his life. Noah was not a Sunday Christian. Noah 
was an every day of the week Christian. And understand that that's what Jesus wants to do in our lives. It's not just clean us up so that we look okay and presentable. And we got our lives together and we fake it a little bit for an hour on Sunday morning. God wants it to be focused on every single day of the week. In fact, what he wants to develop in us is a character that Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but you can write down the reference. Galatians 5.22. He talks about what will be grown in us, what will be evident, what will be developed in us as we truly follow Jesus Christ. If you're truly walking with God, you will have grown in you the entire fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things. Go back and study it. Galatians 5.22. You want to know the life that God has for you as you walk with Jesus? That's it right there. And it's not an abstract love. It's a love for God, a love for others. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Jesus says, love others as yourself. Joy. Do you realize that it is next to impossible to truly have the Holy Spirit living and breathing inside of you and to be a joyless Christian? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the stuff God wants to develop in you. If your life is not radically changed by Jesus Christ, if the trajectory of your life is not toward the fruit of the Spirit, then it could be that you haven't truly met Jesus Christ. I don't mean to question anybody's salvation. That's not my point. But it is not a Sunday-only kind of thing, a part-time, cliched, sort of Americanized version of Christianity that just makes me happy. It is a sold-out, absolutely surrendered life to Jesus Christ. That's the person that walks with God. Those who are in the ark of Christ walk with God. Secondly, those in the ark wait on God. Back in Genesis chapter 5, we are introduced to Noah. And it tells us... In chapter 5, that he was 500 years old and fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're introduced to him at 500 years old. Now, I understand the lifespans were different back then. I'm not going to try to get into all the details on that, but the dude's 500 years old. A hundred years later, he enters the ark. During that time, however long it took him, he built the ark. Let's just say for the case of argument that he's introduced to us at 500 because that's when God first told him to build the ark. And a hundred years later, he and his family finally walk in. You wait on God for five minutes and you start to get patient. Dude waited for a hundred years. And he's building an ark, a boat, without being able to go to Lowe's or Coles or Murray Lumber, or anywhere, and pick up the wood. He's got to cut the trees down. I don't know what in the world he used. He's cutting the trees, no power tools, no chainsaw. He's cutting the trees down, shaping it all, 450 feet long, three stories high. He's building a boat for 100 years, waiting on God's judgment, waiting while the world just gets more evil around him, waiting while people probably ridicule him, waiting while he didn't hear anything else from God. We don't have any record of God speaking to Noah between this time other than to say, build the ark, and now it's time to get in the ark. hundred years he waited. One-sixth of his life up to that point, put that in perspective. Some of you have been waiting on God for something for a long, long time. Noah says, you know what, I understand. 
But waiting on God doesn't mean just sitting around and, okay, I guess I'm just going to you know, hurry up, God. I need you to do something. What did Noah do during the time he waited on God? He built an ark. He just simply obeyed what God had told him. If you don't know what else to do in your life, if you don't know how else to act, go on what God has said until God moves again and you understand what you're to do next. Simply obey the word of God. Say, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. Noah didn't know what else to do but to obey the word of God and wait for God to move again. That's all that he knew to do. And so that's exactly what he did. What we're doing while we wait on God, really, I think it kind of comes down to two little things that Noah did. One is to stand firm. You stand firm while you wait on God. That means there's no compromise. That means there's no quit. You see in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes about spiritual warfare, and over and over and over he says, stand firm. Listen, in this world, while we wait on God to deliver us, while we wait on God to do what he's going to do, whatever that may be, we are to stand firm. No quit, no compromise. We don't change how we live just because the rest of the world does. We, we stand firm on the truth of God's word. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to live. And I'm sorry if nobody else is going to be on this boat with me, but here I am. I will continue to do what God wants me to do. Here I am. I will stand firm. And then I think also, like, like Noah did, we, we stand up. In 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, Noah is described by the Apostle Peter as a herald, a speaker, an announcer of righteousness. Can you imagine the conversations that are being had in a hundred years he's building the ark? The guy walks by and says, no, what are you doing? Well, um, you know, now that you ask, let, let me tell you, the, the, the God of heaven uh, has told me that judgment is coming. And so I'm going to build this ark so that me and my family will be safe because I'm going to obey the word of God. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over. I'm sure he had the same conversation. And over and over the Bible tells us he was a herald, a speaker, an announcer of righteousness. He didn't just ask people, hey, well, you, how do you think I ought to build this thing? Get a little advice from me. He's telling, here's why I'm building it. So as we wait for God, we are also to stand up. The Bible tells us that in our time of waiting on Jesus to return, we are to make disciples of all nations. We aren't sitting here fretting and worrying about what's going on. and Oh, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's wrong with our world. You know what's wrong with our world? We talked about it last week. It's called sin. You know what we're supposed to do in the meantime until Jesus comes back? Make disciples, period. It's real simple. Not sit around and worry. Not sit around and fret. Not sit around and get mad at everybody doesn't think like we think. It is to make disciples. Let me tell you, you start putting your focus on God in a world like this, and the world will diminish in your view. You will not think about it as much. We walk with God, we wait on God. Thirdly, those in the ark worship God. Over in Genesis chapter 8, I want you to look with me at verse 15. Genesis eight fifteen to 22. This is after the flood has receded. God spoke to Noah and he said this, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing of all flesh that is with you. Birds, livestock, creatures that crawl on the ground. They will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives came out. All wildlife, livestock, every bird and every creature that crawls on the earth came out of the ark by their groups. Then look at it, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
A hundred years he built the ark. An entire year he spent inside the ark. And when God said, it's time to come out of the ark, the first thing that Noah did was to worship. He built an altar. And on that altar he made a sacrifice that was called a burnt offering. The burnt offering was completely consumed. It was a sign not only of gratitude to the, to the Lord, but also a sign of surrender and whole life commitment. The entire offering burnt up, just as my entire life is given to you, Lord. They worshipped. And we worship now, looking back on what God did, not only in the story of Noah, but through the rest of Scripture especially at its apex in the crucifixion, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look back and we say, we worship you, Lord, for what you have done for your grace and your mercy. And we worship looking forward to what God will do. That one day, he says in Revelation 21, there will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more death for the old order of things has passed away. We worship looking back and we worship looking forward in anticipation. Worship is an attitude and an action. It is a lifestyle and an event. It is in our hearts, our minds, and our daily activities. It is both inside the church and outside these walls. Worship is what we do because we know Jesus. Noah's Ark, not really for a kid's room, is it? I mean, unless you want to paint like I told you earlier, which I'm fully willing to help with. I promise you, I will come to your house. We will have a big time. Especially a little mobile thing. I would just, just to play Credence over and over and over and over. Some of you lived through Credence, didn't you? That's right. But when we tell our kids this Bible story, when we remind ourselves, when we see a rainbow in the sky, when we hear this story, let's tell the one not that we thought we knew, but the real one.